Lord, that is our prayer. That is our desire to know you more. Lord, we ask tonight as we gather here that you would reveal yourself more to us. Lord, for that truly to happen, we really must surrender ourselves to you. If we don't, if we're holding on to uh, all that, that we are and all that we have coming into this evening, coming into this time with you, Lord, we block off that. We, we can't know you more. We, we build up more of our own understanding. Lord, take that away and Lord, truly speak to our hearts. Reveal yourself more to us. What an amazing truth your word reveals to us, that you do pursue us, that you do come after us. Lord, that truth is beyond what we could, what we could understand as to why you would do that, how you could love us as you do. But Lord, we embrace that truth and we rejoice in it. Thank you for this time tonight. Speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Take out your Bibles, please, and open them up to the book of Judges. Doesn't seem, well, for me anyway, doesn't seem like it's been three weeks, four weeks since we've been in Judges. (laughs) Of course, going to Israel for a couple weeks, I kind of kind of helps with that problem. Judges chapter, chapter 7. We continue our, our study through the, the lives of the children of Israel. And we're in that period as we've studied through Judges. And we're going to continue to see how this roller coaster that they are on. Where they follow the Lord for a while. And then they, they fall away and go into idolatry. And then the Lord sends them into captivity. And then sends a deliverer. And... And they come back to the Lord and they follow him and this roller coaster that they're on. We began our look at the next judge, the next uh, character in our story last time in Gideon. We looked at him starting in chapter 6. And we see, and just as a little recap to give us a little running start, Gideon is a man that, that steps into the scene when the, the children of Israel again fall away. They fall into idolatry. They've turned away from the true and living God, followed the, the people that, that, that are there and the gods of the people, and God gives them over to the Midianites. And the struggle that they are having with the, the Midianites is the greatest struggle they've had to this point. We talked at that time that they, the, the Israelites would plant and they would, they would get all of their, their grain and they would work so hard and when harvest would come, the Midianites would move into the, 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 the plains there and they would take all of the food and then they would destroy whatever was left. This, this oppression going on for, for seven years and we see Gideon... <clears throat> He, we, we find him in the story that he has now taken some of the, the wheat and instead of doing it on the threshing floor on top, he's hiding in a wine press and, and doing that and, and trying to es- escape from that. And he is the one that God calls. He is the one that God calls to deliver the children of Israel. And we, we look at the end of chapter 6 and we, we see that after the call that God gave to, to Gideon, that he puts out the fleece, you know, the, the story where he says, all right, Lord, if you're really going to deliver the, the children of Israel through me, you know, make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry with the dew from the next morning. And that happens. And then he says, all right, just to be sure, 
Lord, let, let's flip that around this time. And tomorrow morning, have the, water, the ground be all wet and the fleece be dry. And again, God honors that and, and shows him that. And, you know, the more I've read this and read some commentaries and actually, you know, hear people teach on that, Gideon gets kind of a, kind of a bad rap. Because we can look back again at Gideon and say, man, oh, ye of little faith right? Because we read the end of the story. Gideon didn't know the end of the story yet. He had God's word, yes, but, but we do as well. We have God's promises. But again, remember, Gideon's a farmer, not a warrior. He's not a commander of armies. And we find out at the end of chapter 6, as he, as he calls the people together, it tells us, let's look there, verse 33, then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves together and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the whole valley now is filled with the Midianites as they've come in now for their annual plunder. And it says, so the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the, the Abizarites came together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. We're going to find out that the total of the men that came from, from the Israelites was 32,000 men. Now, we could say, okay, spirit-filled man, 32,000 men, what's he worried about? Why does he need that? Well, there's 135,000 of the enemy. And again, remember, he's a farmer, <laughs> not a commander, and he's outnumbered four to one. And in that, again, like I said, I, I kind of, the more, the more I read and the more I study about Gideon, the more I can empathize with his situation. Instead of pointing the finger, ye of little faith. But in that, I find so much comfort in the fact that God didn't chastise him for that. God has a heart that understands the situation that we're in and when, when we face it. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that we do not have a high priest that can't sympathize with our situation. He can't, the, the high priest that we have, Jesus, can sympathize with our situation because he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. He understands everything that we're going through. Now, he never sinned and he didn't feel what we feel necessarily in that, but he can sympathize with our situation again because he became one of us. And because of that, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I guess, again, to set the stage for where we begin our study tonight, God honors even weak faith if it's faith placed in him. The, the, the man who had the demon-possessed child Came, came to Jesus to heal him. And Jesus said, do you believe? And he says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus didn't say, well, come back when your faith is stronger. No, he healed his son. He honors faith, even if it's weak, if it's placed in him. And God will continue to place us in situations where our faith is stretched, where, our, where we are put beyond the limits of the current faith that we have. If you haven't ever been in that situation where you've always felt comfortable with where God has you, pray that he, that changes. <laughs> pray that God stretches you to that point. Pray that he takes you so far out in, in the ocean that you can't possibly swim back on your own. Because it's there that you find that intimacy with God that we're going to see Gideon finds in this. 
And we find that through the power of God, we're able to do things far beyond what we could ever do on our own. And there again, he gets all of the glory. He is, he is the one that is praised in that. There's no safer place to be than in the center of God's will, regardless of where that might take us. Well, we see that he clearly is in that after we do the, 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 the fleece here at the end of chapter 6. We see as chapter 7 begins, Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel will become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. <laughs> God said this, these four to one odds, you're outnumbered four to one. You got too many people. There's too many, there's too many of you. I can't deliver the Midianites into your hands with these odds. And he tells them why. Because they would, you would become boastful. You would become proud in the fact that you overcame four to one odds in your own strength. That would be the, the way that, that people would look at that. And it's a shame that that's the way our flesh works. But it is, isn't it? We like to take glory. We like to take even, even a little bit of God's glory in that. And that's why, again, God continues oftentimes to put us out far beyond what we could ever do on our own. So that pride is completely done away with. But I do find it interesting that, that the other side of this coin is he allows the whoever's afraid, who's ever trembling, can go home. So, so those that, that would be the least likely to be proud in the situation because they'd be running at the first sign. He says, go. Those can go. And, and there's, a, there's a valuable understanding in that too that, that saying, okay, whoever's afraid, you can go. Remember... The, the lesson that they lo- supposedly learned long ago when they came to the promised land and they, said, they sent the spies in and the 12 spies went in, 10 came out with the negative report and how quickly that fear spread throughout everyone to the point where it was really Moses, Caleb, and Joshua against everybody else because fear and panic had spread throughout everywhere. And fear does spread quickly. Negativity spreads quickly. It's, it's amazing how just one negative word from someone can change all of that. Or one negative look. This, this Monday, my, my daughter began her spring break week by having all four of her wisdom teeth pulled out. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but So the, we spend the, all morning, my wife and I, telling her, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. We get to the dentist, the dentist comes out and his assistant comes out and everything's going to be great, you're going to be fine. Going through the whole procedure, feeling totally fine. All it took was one word from my, my son, her little brother, oh, you know, and uh, it just totally ruined it, you know. It's amazing how quickly that fear can, can spread. God is saying we need to get rid of that fear and remove that again. He's looking for those who are, who are strong in their faith, absolutely and totally and completely trusting in God, believing in God to do the unbelievable, to do the impossible. 
The Bible tells us in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So here in this first move, taking 22,000 men away who said, yeah, I'm, I'm scared, I'm going home, 10,000 remain that truly trust the Lord. Well, we look at verse 4 then. Then the Lord came to Gideon and said, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his house. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets in their hand, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below in the valley. Again, too many men, 10,000s, too many. <laughs> One of the stops that we do in our, in our trip through Israel just a couple of weeks ago, if, if you were there with us, you'll remember this. We stop at a place called Gideon's Spring or Gideon's Well. Um, from the one vantage point where I took a picture looking back from where we were in the bus back across the valley, and we see there in the distance uh, the, the hill that is referred to in verse 1, the hill of Morah. So the, the Midianites would have been camped on this side of the hill, a couple of miles away. But if you could imagine, 135,000 of them with their, their chariots, with their horses, with their tents, easily seen there in the distance. But there's also a place right there where it's called Gideon Spring. We've got a couple of pictures of that coming right out of the base of the mountain there. Next picture there. It's a beautiful little spring of water. Now, it's not this big, gigantic lake. So, again, if you're going to have, have 32,000, I'm sorry, 10,000 men come up to this spring, they're going to have to come in groups. And God tells them how he's going to divide them. And I have to imagine that he found out, he, was, he realized pretty quickly that the number that was going to be going with him was going to be pretty small. I, I, I know that Gideon wasn't thinking, oh, cool, we're going to have 9,700 going. He knew it was going to be the smaller number. God wasn't going to go through this big exercise just to take 300 out of the group. So he continues to, to go through, and he says again, there's still too many of you. And again, what a... What a powerful thing that we're seeing happening here. And so often we can rely, again, so much on our strengths, on, on our, our past accomplishments, or in numbers, or in, in money, or whatever it might be, when far too often our resources and strengths can sometimes be a hindrance, especially when God wants to do the miraculous. Paul speaks of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7, he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. We look at so oftentimes when we are weak, when we feel like I can't do this in myself, or when others come and insult or, or put us down, we look at that as a negative thing. Paul says, you know, I revel in that because that gives God even a greater opportunity to shine and use me for his glory. Now, a lot has been made of why God would do this particular way you know what that that would they the the to separate them basically the 300 dealt, maybe got down on one knee and dipped their hand and came up and lapped like the dog they, they said out of their hands the others got down on all fours or just laid down face down into the water and drank and i we want to be careful that we don't try to draw too much out of that cuz the bible doesn't tell us there's not a reason why he said this but many believe it's because those that were then then drinking like this, had their eyes up and were continuing to look out and making sure that the enemy was coming, always ready. You know, we could look to a scripture verse that tells us, you know, be alert, always, because your enemy rolls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So that, you know, that might make sense as to, as to a possible reason. Others say they did that because they wanted to keep looking to Gideon, their leader, to see what was going on. we got to, again, be careful we don't draw too much away from that. But one thing I do think that would be pretty clear as to how we would see this is I find it interesting that God did not use a military exercise to separate the two. Like like who could who could climb who could run up the mountain the fastest or or whatever, something, you know, shooting bows and arrows or slingshots to see who was most accurate to find that. He used an ordinary, everyday experience to separate who he would use and who he wouldn't. And in that, I think that we, could, that we could draw away from the fact that we always, we need to treat every action, everything that we do in our lives as a quote-unquote test. How are we handling even the most everyday, ordinary experiences? Are we honoring God in that? Are we, if God were to come down during that and, and use that as a test to show how we are being obedient and faithful to him, Nothing, I guess when I look at that, nothing should be considered ordinary or mundane in our lives. That, that God would always be able to say, I'm proud of the way you handled that. Well, as we see here, they're now removed, they're, they're, they're down to, to 300 men. And <laughs> again, we look at this from a, from a strategy standpoint, 300 men. Versus 135,000 men. It seems, it seems absolutely crazy. But remember, well, I'm sure I had to look it up. So if you remember, that's awesome. But you can jot this down and look it up yourself later. Remember, Deuteronomy 32:30, God said, made a promise that two men would put 10,000 to flight. So how many did they need to really defeat the 135,000? They only needed 27. God gave them 300, <laughs> way more, 10 times as many people as they needed to take care of what God said that he'd do in Deuteronomy. John Wesley said, give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and I will shake the gates of hell. Again, 
when we love the Lord and we follow him and we serve him and we trust in him, man, there's the odds, as we're going to see, it's, they're, they're, they're in our favor. God plus one is a majority. Well, verse 9, now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. Again, God's speaking to Gideon. I have given it. Notice past tense. I have given it into your hands. Verse 10, but if you are afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp. And you will hear what they are saying. And afterward, your hand will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. (laughs) I love God, how he works. Again, he knows, remember we talked about this in our study of Matthew. He knows what we need before we ask. He knew, again, after doing what he just did, taking the impossible and making it even more impossible, whittling this down to 300 men, regardless of, of what, what Gideon may have been showing outside, God could see inside, and he knew that Gideon's faith was, was shaking. And he knew that he needed a little reassurance, so he, he did two things. One, he spoke again, I'm going to deliver them. I will be with you. But then again, I love the fact that he said, hey, and if you're afraid, Go and do this and, and hear this. And so Gideon goes with his servant and he goes down to the camp. And, and it, it, if you think it's a coincidence that this guy had the dream the night before and he's talking about it when Gideon came up, you, you don't understand the same God I know. <laughs> That's, there, there are no coincidences with those types of things with God. It's, I, I love when I hear stories about how people, when they're struggling with something or they're going through something, and God will bring about somebody else at that very time that they need it to speak truth into their life or to share, share something with them. And they're like, wow, imagine the possibility or the odds of that happening. Well, that's the way God works. And, and it's, it's such a blessing when, when, those things, when those things happen. God is faithful. He gives us what we need, when we need it. He gives us the encouragement. He gives us the word. He gives us the power. He gives us the anointing. Remember, Gideon, the the Holy Spirit, it tells us in chapter 6, came upon Gideon, not before he needed it, but when he needed it. I remember when, when God called me to the position of senior pastor here, I... I was so far over my head. And even when it was leading up into it, I was like, God, what? I feel that you're leading me here, but there's no way I can do this. I mean, many of you know back when the, the church was first started and I first did the first time when I got up to do announcements, when there was like 70 people in the church and I was shaking so bad I couldn't even read the announcements. And I, but Bob Claycamp, 
who was here a couple months ago and shared with us, he was, he was helping us through the transition time in the church, and, and he pulled me aside, and, and we were talking, and, and, and he was sharing some stuff with me, and he told me something that I'll, I'll never forget. He said, be prepared for a new anointing on your life that you didn't need before now. And, and I, didn't, I knew in my mind what he was saying with that. I mean, it made sense. But now that I've lived it and I've experienced it, I know what, I didn't need it before. But God is faithful that when he calls and he leads us into an impossible situations, he, br- he brought Bob and others alongside me to, pr- to provide that encouragement. He spoke his word into my heart to encourage me. But then, an anointing on my life. And he'll do the same for all of us as we step out in faith and walk as he guides and leads us. I love, I love how Paul puts it in, in Romans 8. He says, but in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer all of the things that we face. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word that's translated convinced there in a lot of your Bibles is the word persuaded, and that's a better translation, by the way. I am persuaded of this. Literally meaning, I have been talked into it. It wasn't something that I naturally came to on my own. God revealed it to me through his spirit, through his word, through experience. And through all of that, Paul said, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what we have as believers too. This dream, this dream's awesome too. When, when understand it, this loaf of, of barley bread, Loaf is an exaggeration. The, the, what they had, what they would consider a loaf of bread back then would be like what we'd call a hamburger bun. And barley was, was the lowest of the low grain. And that was what they normally fed to the animals. But a lot of Jewish people were eating barley then because, remember, the, the Midianites were coming and taking all the good stuff. So this loaf of barley bread really meant a pretty pathetic thing. And it's saying this guy, he had a dream, and here this loaf of barley bread, this hamburger bun, comes rolling down, knocks over this massive tent. And he's not talking about the little pup tent you get at, at Cabela's, little one-man tent. Massive tents that were put up, you know, with big stakes. So he sees this thing, and it comes rolling in and knocks it all down. And, and I, th- I love this, too. The, the other guy, he completely knew what it meant. That's God revealing supernaturally to him what it all means and striking fear throughout all of these 135,000. Panic and fear is starting to spread throughout the camp. Well, the effect that it has on Gideon, verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. How do you have any other reaction but that, but to just worship God and praise him for his faithfulness, for his goodness? He returned to the camp and Israel of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. I like that now, after having this, this, this confrontation with God through this. I mean, this, this, this revelation that, that God has given to strengthen and encourage his faith, he now goes and encourages everyone else with the same word that God gave him. Look back at verse, verse 9. I have given it into your hands. 
Verse 15, the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. We encourage one another with the word of God. As, as God's word has encouraged us, we encourage others with his word. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into their hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, look at me and do, do likewise. And behold, when I come out to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with, with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, which would be like 10, 11 o'clock at night. When they had just posted the watch, just after they had changed guard, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran crying as they fled. <laughs> when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shithah toward Zerah, and as far as the edge of Abel Mahola by Tabath. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. At first, this sounds like a kind of a crazy strategy. Blowing trumpets and smashing your pots and holding torches. But it's brilliant, if you think of it. Because if you, if you have 300 men that are all surrounding this in the middle of the night, it's pitch dark, they surround it, they blow the trumpets, they smash the, the torches, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs with that. The Midianites wake up and they think there's 300 battalions of men. They're not going to think that they're going to come with just torches and trumpets. They're going to think that there's battalions. Of, those are just the leaders. The battalions are behind them. Brilliant. <laughs> if I'm reading this, I'm thinking, that's just, that's crazy. Why would it? But it's, it's, it's amazing. I, one, of the, one of the trips that we had gone to Israel, our, our guide told us, one time there was a, this recent Israel history, I think it's the 1967 conflict, but it could be, could be a later one. But the, up on the Golan Heights, the troops from Syria are coming in, and their tanks, and their hundreds of tanks are rolling in, and they come into this spot and they settle in. There is a, one man in a tank, from the, a Jewish man in a tank. And it's, and it's night now, so they've all stopped, and they're waiting for their next, their next assignment or what they're supposed to do. And he can't get reinforcements until morning. So he, he has this idea, God-given, I know, Lord laid it on his heart. He drives up this one hill with his lights on on his tank, up to the top, turns the lights off. Backs down, moves over, drives up with his lights on. Backs down, turns it on, up, up, and up. They started, they thought that they were completely surrounded by tanks. They retreated. <laughs> I love how God works. They're running around and, and they're, 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 they're freaking out in the camp. Again, it's the middle of the night. They're sleeping. They wake up. They think all of this is going on. Somebody runs by them. They think it's the enemy. It's their own guy. Amazing. God's, God is the ultimate battle strategist. 
when it comes to, again, how we are to fight our spiritual battles. The Bible tells us how we're to prepare for our battles, but we, we go out and, again, we fight from a position of victory. I've said this before, you know, again, conquerors leave the battlefield victorious more than conquerors. That's who we are. We enter the battlefield victorious. Our God knows our enemy better than they know themselves. He knows their strategy. He knows what they're going to do. That's one of the great things about us serving a sovereign God. He knows what they're going to do. He knows their tactics. He knows what their, their next move before they do it. Well, that's unfair. Too bad. That's the great part about us. We're, we're on that side. And when we follow and we listen and we, and we move as he says move and we move out in faith, we have victory in that. Faith is the victory. He said, I have given it to you. It's moving out in that faith. 1 John chapter 5. For what, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali, verse 23, Asher and Manasseh and pursued Midian. Gideon now sends out the word, calling in the reinforcements. Those that had been sent home, come on back. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So he goes to this other group who hadn't been a part of the initial group and said, all right, you go cut them off. They're, gonna, they're chasing that way. You go ahead and cut them off at the pass. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. They killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Kind of an amazing transformation again if we think back to chapter 6. and What happened with Gideon. Here's this, again, farmer. Unqualified, certainly, for the the task of, of leading an army, his, his, his father at least, but more than likely his mother too, worshipped pagan gods. Not a man of extreme faith at the beginning. And look what God did with him. A huge army whittled down to 300 men, and look what God did with them. That should encourage every one of us in this room. Every one of us. That what God can do in us, regardless of where we are in our situation, regardless of how unqualified we might feel, regardless if even right now you're struggling with faith in your own life, God can change all of that. God can use you. And at times, I, it, it is. When we look at the, the, the monumental task of reaching the city of surprise with the gospel, we could say, well, man, there's, there's only so many of us here. But what God can do with Calvary Chapel Surprise, if we are filled with, with the Holy Spirit and step out in faith, doesn't need large, large numbers and, and overqualified people, that's for sure. Well, chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? 
Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Ebiezer? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him was subdued when he said that. Ephraim comes. They're feeling snubbed by the whole thing. They're like, how come you didn't invite us to be a part of the initial battle? You know, you just send us in for the mop-up operation afterwards. And I, I love, again, how his reaction is. Because in our flesh, we could certainly you know, get rustled up with that and, 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 and fight back. But, you know, it's, the Bible says as much as it has to do with you, be at peace with all men. Matthew 5, 9, remember in the, in the, uh, the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. To take the, to diffuse the situation instead of fighting back. He's like, oh, I, I completely understand. But look, look how God used you. Compared to, compared to what you were able to accomplish, even in your, your role here at the end, compared to what I did. Man, just, just look. Look how God is using you in that. And they're like, oh, all right. And anger has subsided with that. So again, this, the, the humility of Gideon through this whole thing, amazing. Then Gideon, verse 4, and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. So Gideon and his 300 men continue to pursue the, 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 the remainder of the, the 135,000, as we will see, there's still 15,000 of them. They're chasing and pursuing them. We should never grow tired of God's work, but it is possible to grow tired in God's work. As a matter of fact, if you don't grow tired in working for the Lord, you're probably not working hard enough for the Lord. <laughs> probably not doing enough to serve Him with, with your life. And there are times when we get weary and when we get tired. And, and we see that here. It, it's... They, this area, by the way, when they get to this Sukkoth in verse 5, it's over 40 miles. So they've, they, the, from where they started this thing, they are pursuing them, hot pursuit, over 40 miles. So they come to this place, and he said to the men of Sukkoth, by the way, who are Jewish people, please give us loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary. And I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The leaders of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmanah already in your hands that we should give bread to your army? They're like, You haven't defeated them yet. And if you haven't defeated them yet and we help you, they're going to come back on us. Their own brethren, these are the ones, Gideon and these men are the ones fighting against their enemy and they're taunting them and they're giving them a hard time and not going to give them food to help them in this. Gideon said, All right. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He went up from there to Penuel, again, another Jewish place, filled with, filled with his own people, and spoke similarly to them. And when the men of Penuel answered him, just as the men of Sukkoth had answered, so he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down the tower. 
it's important that when we do come across those who are who are working and striving to for the the work of the Lord that we we don't discourage. Can you imagine the discouragement there? Just hey, we're we're in pursuit here. Just need a little bread and water, and the response that they got in that how discouraging that must be. But also in that, don't be discouraged when when you're when you're working hard and and people are maybe speaking against you. If you are if you know that you are in the in the will of God and and pursuing the will of God. Don't be discouraged because oftentimes the enemy will use even friends, even those closest to us, to be a discouragement. And it didn't slow down, it didn't slow down Gideon and the troops one one step. They continued on. Verse 10 Now Zeba and Zalmana were in Karko, and their armies were with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east, for fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. So the 300, again, the killing, the fighting against themselves and all of this sort of stuff, 120,000 had already fallen. Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in the tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Ziba and Zalmana fled, they pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zelba and Zalmana, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres. He captured the youth from Sukkoth and questioned him, and the youth wrote down for him the princes of Sukkoth and the elders, 77 men, the ones that, who mocked him earlier and said he wouldn't give him any bread, Wrote down this list, making a list and checking it twice. Don't want to be on that list. Came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmanah, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmanah already in your hand, that we should give you bread to your men and arrear? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. He tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now, verse 17 Certainly is stricter punishment, you know, other than just disciplining. The men of that city were actually killed. And again, don't know why. Doesn't tell us. Some commentators believe it was because they were actually aiding the Midianites. Or when they went and were doing what they said they were going to do to tear down the castle, they actually attacked them. And that's what caused that. Again, don't know for sure. But certainly there was repercussions for their, their unwillingness to, to help. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There's no neutral ground. And for to stand there and to say, well, we'll wait and see how this whole thing settles out. You're taking sides with, with the enemy. And Gideon returns and does what he said he was going to do. And he said to Ziba and Zalmana, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? Now, we don't have biblical and a biblical account of this battle at Tabor. But obviously at one point... The Midianites, when they came in, there was a battle and they, they had killed some Israelites. Gideon asking them the question and they said, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. He said, they were my brothers. Gideon's, Gideon's own brothers killed by these, these kings, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you would let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. 
Then Ziba and Zelmanah said, Rise up yourself and fall on us, for as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zelmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks. Again, the, the, at that time, that was part of the, the kinsman piece, you know, the, the next born. It was, it was in the law that they are to redeem the blood of, of their brothers, so he does that there. Verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hands of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Again, Gideon's, Gideon's humility, not going to take the, the, the mantle of king. God is our leader. God is our king. And even in that, it would be easy to, to step into that role, but he pushes back on that. Unfortunately, that's the kind of the end here of, of uh, <laughs> the good decisions of Gideon. Verse 24, yet, Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So as they were defeating them and the, the fallen soldiers, as they were falling again, 135,000 of them, they collect their golden earrings. They said, surely we'll give that to you. So they spread out a garment, and each one of them threw an earring from the spoil. The weight of the earrings he had requested was 1,700 shekels, roughly like 50 pounds of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the, and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neck bands that were on their camels' necks. So a lot of gold. Gideon becomes extremely wealthy through this entire process. But verse 27 says, Gideon made it into an ephod, and placed it in his city, Orpha. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. Now we don't understand, this happens very quickly in our verses here, but chances are it probably took a little bit of time to get to this point. Based on how I would put this together, Gideon probably, his heart was probably in the right place when he began this process of, of making this, this ephod because that was a symbol of worship. It's what the high priests wore to remind themselves as they, there was 12 pieces on their jewels on this breastplate that the high priest wore, the, the children of Israel close to their heart, representing God, representing the people before God. His heart was probably in the right place as it began. I'm just making an assumption there. But it became an object of worship. And unfortunately, so often in our own hearts, that is, that's what happens. I believe that there's a lot, a lot of things that will never be found be, that people are looking for now because God knows that if they're found, they'd become objects of worship. We see that everywhere that we go in religion to find objects and relics that become objects of worship. And God said, you worship nothing and no one but me should have been, if that was the case, if his heart was in the right place, as soon as it became an object of worship, he should have destroyed it, but it didn't. And it says it became a snare to Gideon and his household as well. So Gideon and the other people, they fall into idolatry. Verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. The land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons. Poor wife. Unfortunately, tells us, they were the result of many wives. Verse 30. 
His concubine, was who, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and named him Abimelech. Now, we will get into Abimelech's story next week in chapter 9, but suffice it to say, his concubine, who was in Shechem, was a Canaanite. Again, breaking, being disobedient. God said, do not marry the Canaanites. Do not become involved with them because you will serve their gods. And that, again, is the outcome of what happens here. So Gideon, unfortunately, started great, (laughs) but he's finishing poorly. We can't rest on past performance, if you would. We We can't say, well, man, I served the Lord and things have been great. Now I can coast. Now I can sit back. We need to finish the race that is set before us. As the author of Hebrews said, we run that race and we throw off the things that entangle us and the sin which so easily entangles us. We need to throw that off. Unfortunately, Gideon did not. Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in a tomb of his father Joash in Orpha of the Abizrites. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel played harlot with the Baals and made Baal Beareth their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all the enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done Israel. So even then, because of the way his life had slipped away at the end and away from God, he become like everybody else. They did, and they didn't show even respect and honor to his house there at the end well it's all the time we have for there's so many things in that though and i i know you understand that we need to we need to finish the race when we when we allow our lives to slip as gideon's did it ruins our testimony and and it draws others away from following the true and living god we need to we need to look at gideon's faith and all the stuff at the first part of this is a great example to us as to follow but well, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. And as we look at the story of Gideon, there are so many things to draw out of this, so many practical applications for our lives. But Lord, primarily, we take away from this that, that we are to walk by faith, not by sight, not by what it appears uh, the, the, the numbers or the odds against us as we move out as you lead. But Lord, as you lead, as you guide, as you speak to us in your word, and as you move amongst us, Lord, that we would step out in faith, trusting in you and you alone for the outcome. Lord, we do ask that you would use us in miraculous, mighty ways as we continue to see the world around us clearly showing that the time is short. But we also know, Lord, that the the harvest is ready. Use us in this time, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, encourage us when our faith falters and use us mightily for for your glory, in your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week.